Well, a good morning to you all. Hello to everyone watching online. Hello to everyone in Alma and a greeting to everybody here. It's wonderful to be together. This is week number three of a series called Paramount where we've really been just looking at the cross. Uh, the word paramount means um, of greatest importance. Um, if you look it up in the dictionary, it has the word supreme right beside it. Paramount is supreme. Uh, that which is supreme. And uh, I am... I am I've preached lots of messages. I find myself today uh, with this feeling that we're, we're talking about something very sacred, very sacred. And I'm actually delighted that as a church, we would deliberately take time to examine our lives in the light of the cross. Um, and, and for me, I, I want to do that for the rest of my life. I want to examine my life uh, in the light of the cross. And I think for, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, it's something very sacred because I think we have a bit of a grasp of the weight of it and the cost of it. Uh, I think that's something that's in us. And so I just feel like I'm approaching something very sacred today. And today, I, I want to ask a singular question uh, as we've been examining the cross over the last few weeks. Uh, and today's question would simply be this. Um, like God... I see that you've done this thing. What are you accomplishing here? Uh, to, to what end? And particularly have you, as you personalize this, like God has obviously gone to an extreme length. What's the point for you? What's the point of that? What's the point for me? Uh, what, what, is that, what is that all about? And so I want to simply answer that question today. Uh, and I want to chop it up into three little pieces. What, what did the cross accomplish? If you're taking notes, would you dive in with me right now and write this down? Number one uh, is the word salvation. What, what is the point of the cross? What did the cross accomplish? And it's, it's there to save your skin. I mean, I mean, big time. And, and then the question would be, from what? And I'm going to say two words here. And actually, there are two words that you might go, oh, please don't say those two words, but I've got the microphone, so I'm going to say them. Um, really nobody wants to talk about it. But, I mean, your skin needed saving, and we're talking dire saving. What, what is the cross going to accomplish? And here are the two words. It's the wrath and the, it's the anger of God. Oh, nobody wants to talk about that, right? What a, what a dreadful subject. I, several years ago, I bought a Bible for my kids when they were smaller, and they were into, you know, Lego, and they had the little figures, little Lego characters. And uh, so I saw this Bible that, and someone had made little pictures of the little Lego characters and put them in tons of different scenes all throughout the different stories in the Bible. I'm like, this is going to be great for my kids. I bought them the Bible, and then we started to go through it and looking at the stories and the pictures when they were smaller. And after a while, I actually got rid of it because every single picture that they had of God, he was white with a big Santa Claus beard, and his eyebrows were like angry eyebrows everywhere. I was like, Okay, I understand the Bible talks about God being angry, but like, is he ever not angry? I mean, I thought it was completely inaccurate. And, and not only that, but like teaching my children that God is perpetually angry with them. Uh, and I just don't think that's the case at all. The question goes out, you know, what makes you angry? Well, usually you get angry when something goes wrong. Even legitimately, like something legitimately goes wrong and you get angry. Well, what makes God angry? And the answer for God is really specific. God gets angry at evil. That's it. He gets angry at sin, which is evil. And there's probably a little bit of a difference between my anger and your anger and God's anger. 
So sometimes you get this idea, like, angry God, like, in this Lego Bible thing that I had, like, God's just, you know, if you think of God's anger as, like, just God's in a bit of a bad mood today, or, you know, God's got a bit of an attitude, a bit of a chip on his shoulder, don't get too close, because, you know, he might fly off the handle, and you never know when he's going to do that, you know, God might just sort of lash out, and if you're not careful, you're going to get the back of his hand If that's your understanding of God sort of getting out at the wrong side of the bed, can I just say to you, that's not not God's anger at all. That's nothing even close to it. In fact, God's anger is incredibly predictable. It's unbelievably predictable because it's provoked by just one thing, evil. When he encounters evil, here comes wrath and anger from God. One thing alone. So God's anger is actually right. His anger is correct. Like, you should be angry at the things that make God angry. God's anger is unremitting, and it is uncompromising, and it is unchanging, and it is only always towards evil and sin, and when harm is done. God has a singular stance towards evil in all of its forms and manifestations, and it has many. He just won't tolerate it. I will, and so will you to different degrees about different kinds of things, but God won't. Which means God's anger and our anger that we function in commonly are polar opposites. They're so far apart from each other. Maybe you've seen anger in your life. Maybe you're an angry person. Maybe you've been exposed to anger. Maybe you had an angry boyfriend. And you look back and you go, man, that, that was not healthy. Maybe you grew up in a house And it it was poor parenting, very unhealthy, angry parenting. And, And that's your understanding of what anger actually is. Maybe you go to work every day right now, and you work with somebody, a colleague, or even worse, if it's someone who's a boss, like they have a bit of authority, and they're like control freak, power freak, domineering, and it's just lashing out and angry and shouting at people, and you don't know what to do with that or how to even manage that. And maybe that's what you've experienced and understood anger to be. Again, let me ask you, what provokes your anger? Because I think we can be so fickle. Somebody hurts your feelings, your vanity. You get maybe interrupted in some way or bothered or frustrated or you're like, I'm just impatient today. And so you feel entitled. I'm just going to be angry. I'm just impatient or I just got out of the wrong side of the bed. God's anger is in another league entirely. He only gets angry at evil and sin. Sometimes we see evil and we see sin. In fact, sometimes we commit our own little versions of evil and sin, and we actually fail to be angry when we should. We actually open up the door and we introduce that into our lives, and we're like perfectly content to kind of coexist and cohabitate with that. And God's like, I'm actually angry about that, and so should you be. Now, I think this helps us understand why, this question. What are you accomplishing in the cross? What's the the point of it, particularly when we personalize it? The gospel is crystal clear on the issue of sin and wrath. You needed to be saved. Your skin had to get saved from wrath and anger because this is one of those things that you just couldn't fix. 
You might be fairly handy, but I'm telling you, you can't fix this one. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you have to offer. There's no possibility of you persuading or cajoling or bribing or twisting God's arm or manipulating him so that you can just dodge this wrath and anger. In the context of anger and wrath, what's needed here is what has actually taken place, is that God has actually taken the initiative out of his sheer love and grace and mercy towards you. Ever looked at the news and become angry? I found myself in the last 12 months watching less and less of the news. It makes me angry. I don't seem to cope with it very well. I'm just kind of removing it a little bit. Do you remember a picture? I I probably will remember this all my life. It was several years ago on the news of a little boy who was washed up on the sea, face down in a little red t-shirt, like a piece of driftwood. It was 2015. He was a Syrian immigrant. He was maybe two or three, washed up on the shore of a Turkish resort. I looked at that, and I was angry. Should I be angry about that? I think I should. I think you should be angry about that. Something has gone. It's just, it's not supposed to be like that. Sometimes there's a good and proper place for anger. Do you see the righteous anger that has its proper place in the context of evil? You see, God, when he sees evil and sin, he's not indifferent to it. And he won't change on that. He's not numb. He's not, well, it's been going on for millennia now, so I'm just kind of used to it. He's not going to be quiet about it. He's not okay with it. He will not excuse it. He will not live with it or allow it or tolerate it or coexist with it. In fact, every single act of foolish, depraved activity, every war, every violent exchange, every lie, every envious and proud and arrogant word that pours out of our mouth, every broken marriage vow, every act of prejudice and racism, God says, I'm not okay with any of that. 1 John chapter 4, this is love. Look where the initiative comes from. Look who's, look who's sort of taking the first step. This is love. It's not that we loved God, <laughs> not at all, but that he loved us. What's the point of the cross? He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This thing that provokes God's wrath and God's anger. What is the root source of this anger that we don't even like to talk about. I cannot overstate this enough. That would be God's love. God's love. That is the source of Jesus Christ stepping into your shoes. Jesus Christ taking on board your responsibility. And although he was without guilt, here he comes on your behalf. He says, I will take the guilt, I will take the wrath, I will take the anger, that should scare the living daylights out of you, and it does, it scares the living daylights out of me because I am useless to defend myself against that kind of anger and wrath. There's just nothing I can do. And knowing Jesus, he, he, he sees this, knowing this about you, Jesus says, it's almost like a, a, a sports game. He sees you on the field of life, and he says, hey you, come here, come off the field. 
You can't fix this. You've made a mess of this. I need you to stop. I'm actually going to bench you. I'm coming in, and I am going to be your substitute. That's what I will do for you. You needed saving. Dire saving. And if you look at anger and wrath as like, oh, God's just in a bad mood. God's just got a chip on his shoulder. God's just got on you know, the wrong side of the bed. It's some, some kind of picture of God as this aggressive, you know, up there in the heavens with the, with the big beard and the lightning bolt, sort of with this frowning, looking for you to make a mistake. I'm telling you, you've got a, you've got a warped understanding of biblical anger. You've missed it. P.T. Foresight says this, God's feeling towards us never needed to be changed. But God's treatment and God's practical relationship to us That had to be changed. And so he goes to the cross to take anger and the wrath for the evil and the sins that we have agreed with. Why would you do that? Because I've come to welcome you home. Because you're lost. And I'm going to go to an extraordinary length. I'm going to welcome you home. And what is this thing that takes away anger and wrath? What is this thing that saves us, saves our skin? Well, it's not a thing at all. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He comes and he buys back. He rescues. He literally pays a ransom fee for you. He's going to redeem you. Your salvation, and I think we understand this as followers of Christ, we see like there's a weight to the cross. There's a weight to this price, this payment that has been paid. Make no mistake about it. It is the exertion of a mighty, mighty force. It is a great expenditure of divine power. Your salvation comes at an epic price. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I love what the scripture does. It takes that which, of, of, which is of the highest value to us. And it makes it look measly. For you know that it was not with perishable things. Such as silver or gold. That you were redeemed. From the empty way of life. Handed down to you from your ancestors. And here's the thing of value. But by the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. Could you please say Amen. That's the weight that we feel as followers. That's why this is a sacred subject. Listen carefully. What did the cross achieve? The cross provided for you salvation from wrath and anger of God because of your sin and evil, because you could not rescue yourself. So the person of Jesus Christ came and he took your place and he appeases God's wrath and anger through his shed blood so that you could now be in right treatment and right relationship with God. The real question is, has that actually been accomplished in your life? Have you gone to the cross? Does that mean anything to you? Has that completely changed your life? Or do you look at that and go, I don't really know. And today, I believe the Holy Spirit is already drawing you to the Father. And there are those of you in Alma and online and here in Mount Pleasant. And right now, your heart is beating out of your chest. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, and you know it. And He wants to show you something. He wants to show you the cross. Second thing that the cross accomplishes, number one, 
is saving your skin. Number two, I like this word, is a revelation. Did you ever see something for the first time? You're like, wow, I never really noticed that. God wants you today to see something that you've never seen before. Did you ever learn about something and you're like, oh, I know, I know some things about it. But then you get to a place where you're like, oh my goodness, it's like my eyes have been opened. I now have gone beyond knowing something about it. And now I actually, I get it. I get it. And that's where God, that's where the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish today. He wants you to see the cross and actually have a revelation of it in a way that you've never seen before. I get it. I get what you're doing here, God, on my behalf. He wants you to see something, for it to be fully known to you, for your eyes to be opened so that you would see not just any truth, but the greatest truth of all. It's probably about 25 years ago, and I will never, ever forget this conversation because there was a lump in my, tro- in my throat and major butterflies in my stomach. I felt like I was going to jump off a cliff and I didn't know where I was going to land. I was going to have a conversation with a girl and her name is Kelly. It was that conversation. The problem was, I was well aware that she was stratospheres out of my league. But in Ireland, we would simply say this, I think I fancied her. And I think she fancied me. And I, I was like, I'm gonna, there's no way. There's like, there's no way. If I, have, if I say this to her, you know, that I fancy her, isn't that a great phrase? Like, there's no way. There's, there's not a chance. Even with the accent, I don't know that there's a chance at all. And it was thicker back then. But I'm like, and so at the time, we had a bunch of friends and, you know, just young people hanging out and doing fun stuff and going to the movies and going to each other's homes and just having fun. And what became apparent to all of our friendships is that we had caught each other's eye. And so I had a bunch of guys coming up to me and were like, totally, ask her out, ask her out. And I was like, there's no chance, there's no way. I'm not doing that, like I, I will be beneath her shoe. There's no chance that's happening. Meanwhile, the girls, unbeknownst to me, were like, hey, Kelly, go out with the Irish fella, go on. She's like, I don't know, is that gonna happen or not? And in fact, just young people having all the fun that they were having, they would even just do it in front of us. We'd be all hanging out together like, you guys totally like each other. And you're like, I don't know where to look, I don't know where to see right now. All of that was going on and that's all fun and everything. But then it came to the moment where like, it's time to step up and be a man and get your, ha- your heart trounced upon. Here we go. So I-, I picked my moment. I'm like, I gotta do it. I think she's gorgeous. I think I like her. I know she's out of my league. And I, I picked my moment one evening and uh, it was just the two of us. And I said to her, man, I'm not even joking. I was dying. I was dying. And by the way, I can't even believe I'm telling you this story. You better appreciate this story. This is major mushiness about to take place. And uh, so I said to her, just the two of us, I said, uh, I was like stuttering. I said, um, hey, Kelly, um, do you know the way people have been saying, you know, that Alan likes Kelly and Kelly likes Alan. And she was like, what what conversation are we having right now? (laughs) Um, You know, antenna on high alert. And she was like, yes. And I was dying, I'm just dying in this moment. I was like, well, uh, so, (laughs) so mushy. The part about Alan likes Kelly, you know, that's kind of true. And then I waited. (laughs) 
You feel that? <laughs> Anyone ever done that? I mean, what's she going to say? Right now, I mean, she can just, she can stomp all over me. She can reject me. She can take my heart, which is right like flapping in the wind right now. And she can do anything she wants. Or maybe, maybe just this could come good. And so it was probably like three seconds, but like it felt like, you know, four years or something. And she, she looked at me and her eyes were just sparkling. And she said, well, as far as the... <laughs> Kelly likes Alan part. Yeah, that's, that's kind of true. <laughs> yes! <laughs> All right, here we go, baby. This is going to be great. And so I'm like, would you like, let's go out on a date. And that was about 25 years ago. Okay, all right, all right. All right, wh why the mushy story? There's something, there's something to that moment. Revelation. There's something to that, that little second in there. I believe there's a divine, vulnerable statement flapping in the wind waiting for you. It stands in the center of human history. It's expressed in the figure of a man dying on a cross. What are you going to do with that? Do you ever look at somebody and judge their character by their actions? God is revealing himself in his son, specifically on the cross. Christ's glory and his splendor. And during his ministry, he, these miracles, and you could see it, his glory and his splendor, the authority with which he spoke. But no more, no better place than in this self-humiliation. His heart on a sleeve. His chosen weakness. His act of becoming flesh. This is the Christmas story. That he would do that for us. A child in a manger, the king of kings. In actual fact, it's on display for both the Father and the Son. It is the self-giving. The Father is giving away His Son. The Son is giving away His life. It is this pouring out of love. His holiness is right there for you to see. He is, John chapter 1, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 10, He is the good shepherd who gives His life for the sheep. And He says, I want you to see this. I want you to have a revelation of what I'm doing for you. It is a clear public demonstration of justice and love. In fact, you are looking at the very, if you want a definition of love, don't go to the dictionary, go to the cross. Listen to these words. Canon Vaston says this, God's love, it's expended in self-giving. It's wholly expended without residue or reserve. It drained, exhausted, spent. That is, in the giving of his son, he gave himself. God wants you today to have a revelation of the cross. And it stands in this moment in time, this moment of your life, waiting for your response. The son suffers dying. The father suffers the death of a son. 
the fatherlessness of the son is matched with the sonlessness of the father. Jesus was not just socially outcast by his friends or by the nation of Israel. He was now becoming a spiritual outcast. His outspoken acceptance of what was going to come to him, which was God-forsakenness, nothing less than the dereliction of his own dad. It may be the greatest evidence of his love for you. His death must be seen by you. He wants you to see it. He wants you to get it. Think of that moment when I stuttered my way through expressing my affection to this beautiful girl. And I waited. And you don't breathe in that moment. Will she reciprocate? Will she trounce on my heart and reject me? Will she see my offer of affection? Will she ignore me at my most vulnerable, my most fragile? And I want you to see the cross today. Holy Spirit, even as we open your word right now, I pray that you would give every person a deep and personal revelation of the cross. You've got to admit it, church. You must admit, like there's nothing subtle about the cross. My approach to Kelly was filled with reserve and caution and should I and I don't know. There's nothing like that about the cross. He is shouting from the rooftops, this is for you! I'm pinning myself to a piece of wood. There's no mistaking about it. This is what I'm doing for you. It's not careful. It's not cautious. It's not hesitant. It can't be mistaken for anything else. And today is the day he wants you to see to the full extent that he has gone to. And he wants this revelation, this revealing of his love. And so now in this moment, he waits. What will you do with this powerful and tender truth? The prodigal son is a story of a pretty unkind little boy. A greedy boy who takes his father for dead, runs away with his inheritance and squanders it like a fool. And he comes back because he's nowhere else to go. And it's funny, I don't think the Bible says that he even comes back to make things right. I think he's just trying to survive. He comes back to be a slave because he wants a roof over his head and he wants food. It's not even a nice return. Kenneth Bailey says, the whole village would have known what the prodigal son did. In an honor-shame culture, the disgrace that some kind of punishment had to come. It was inevitable for what this boy had done. The punishment, it had to take place if only to preserve the father's honor. He had done nothing wrong. But you see, in that story, the father bears the suffering instead of inflicting it. Although, and particularly in that culture, a man of his age would walk slowly with great dignity He probably had not run in about 40 years. And yet we see this father racing down the road because he sees his son coming from afar. He's like a teenager for coming to his his son's homecoming. 
and the risk of ridicule by the street urchins, he doesn't care. He takes upon himself shame and humiliation that's supposed to go to the son, to the prodigal. This is the story about a father who leaves the comfort of his home and exposes himself in a humiliating fashion in front of everybody in a village street. It is a coming down. It is a going out. This boy that it hints at the incarnation again. That's the Christmas story. And it is this humiliating spectacle in the middle of a village which hints at the meaning of the cross. The suffering of the cross was not primarily physical, although that was horrendous, right? It is the agony of rejected love. And what was essential for this prodigal son? Remember, he was coming back to be a mere slave so that he could just get by. But what was needed to restore him and to once again cause him to actually be an adopted son is that it required a physical demonstration of self-emptying love through suffering. The boy had to see his dad like that. And as unbelievable as that is, he needed that in order to become a son again. Do you see why this is sacred truth? What's the cross accomplishing? Number one, to save your skin. Number two, I want you to get it, a revelation. And number three, and I like this word, conquest. Now, I'll tackle this briefly if I can. For those of you who've gone to church for any period of time, if you're new, this might be fresh to you. You'll often hear Christians talking about the cross. And there's this language that seems to always pop up when it comes to the cross. It's little words like, oh yeah, the cross. That's like like this joyful confidence that we have. This joyful thing. Um, This victory. The cross is this victory. It was this winning moment. We've overcome because of the cross. You hear this language. Jesus comes in in triumphal procession. It's a triumph. And, And sometimes... You know, I think any person would kind of scratch their head and go, really? Because at first glance, that really doesn't make any sense. Are you trying to tell me that some guy a long time ago died a pretty horrible death? Like, where's the joy in that? Where's the triumph in that? Isn't that just a picture of some guy who's betrayed by his own people? Betrayed and denied and deserted by friends, that he was just sort of executed under the authority of Rome. Let me show you this image right here. Like, let me ask you the question. Does this, does that look like triumph? Does that look like anybody's winning anything? Where's the joy in that? Where's the victory? Where's this language of like overcoming? Why are we talking like that? It doesn't really look like conquest at all. It looks like somebody's losing, actually. It looks like a man skewered to a piece of wood. It looks like somebody who's lost their freedom of movement, that they're strung up by nails and ropes, that they're powerless. And I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like anybody's winning anything. It looks like defeat. It looks like loss. In fact, if I was forced to ask, to answer the question, who's winning? I would say the only thing that's winning on that day is pride and arrogance and violence and brutality and cruelty and cowardice and betrayal. That looks to be the winner. And church, I have to simply tell you that what looks like evil is winning, please hear me, is simply not. You think Rome is crushing him? 
You think Roman centurion guards are in charge? You think the Pharisees have had their way? Can I tell you who's having their way? Genesis chapter 3 is having its way. That's the first book in the Bible, third chapter, where it says this. This Messiah is going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's actually what's taking place at the cross. The serpent's head is being crushed. The victim is actually the victor. And the cross is the throne from which he still rules the world. And the joy is found in that the very thing that death does to everybody else, it could not do to Jesus Christ. You see, the cross secured conquest over what? Over the very thing we started talking about, sin and evil. That's the conquest. This moment, can we look at this picture again? This exact moment was predicted in the Bible. I mean, think about this. Satan tried everything he could to avoid that moment right there. He did. He tried to kill him as a child through Herod. He tried to kill him in the desert. He tried in the temple to tempt him, to take away his holiness. He tried to kill him multiple times. In the Gospels, it says there were these crowds of people that just came that said, we're going to kill Jesus. And it said Jesus just walked right through them. It says the Pharisees tried to kill him. Judas betrayed him to kill him. The guards arrested him to kill him. Do you know what happened when the guards arrested Jesus? He simply stated who he was. He just said who he was. Do you know what happened to the guards? You want to ask who's in charge in this moment? It says the guards, when he just said who he was, it's just that they just fell on the ground. Who's arresting who in this moment? The cross secured conquest over evil. Let me tell you who's in charge of the cross. That would be the king of kings. You see, Satan and every demonic spirit was salivating for his death. Can I show you what the word of God says that his death accomplished when it comes to evil and the satanic and the demonic? Colossians chapter 3. When you were dead in your sins, you don't know how useless we are, how powerless we are. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Church, can you say amen? He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What a conquest over evil. He is literally overthrowing dark, demonic principalities and powers. And church, the power of the cross is still as potent today as it was 2,000 years ago. Please hear this. His blood still heals and still forgives and still cleanses and still saves and still loves and still washes and still has authority over the evil one. And at the end of all time, the book of Revelation states this unequivocally. War broke out in heaven and Michael and his angels fought the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, who were no match for Michael. They were cleared out of heaven. Not a sign of them left. The great dragon, ancient serpent, the one called devil and Satan, the one who led the whole world astray, thrown out, and all his angels thrown out with him, thrown down to earth. And then I heard a strong voice out of heaven saying, salvation and power are established. 
kingdom of our God, authority of his Messiah, the accuser of our brothers and sisters thrown out, who accused them day and night before God. They defeated him through the blood of the Lamb and the bold word of their witness. Church, can you say amen? Let's stand up together. Let's worship the King of Kings.